Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and I hope welcome again to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, the host of this podcast, where my guest talks to me about the five things from any part of their life that they treasure enough to want to preserve in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they cherish, but they also have to reveal one that they loathe and would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is Jimmy Mulville, who for many years was an actor, writer and producer, with such hits as Who Dares Wins, That's Love and Chumps of One, Two, Three, until, unfortunately, the setting up of his company, Hattrick Productions, forced him to concentrate on being an executive producer and movie mogul. Poor thing. He's overseen some of the country's most popular comedy shows, such as The Armstrong and Miller Show, Ballot Monkeys, Father Ted, Game On, The Kumars, Outnumbered, Room 101, Whose Line Is It Anyway, Derry Girls, and of course, Have I Got News For You. But he's managed to keep up the acting by playing the villainous Thomas in Andy Hamilton's long-running Radio 4 comedy show, Old Harry's Game. Very sensible. I mean, you never know when the old exec-producing and movie-mogling business is going to fall apart. No names, no pack drill, no international pandemic. So let's hear what Jimmy would choose to put in his time capsule. Although I do have to warn you that Jimmy is a lifelong Everton supporter, and as such, is bound to mention it. I apologise in advance. Jimmy Mulville, thank you very much for taking part in my time capsule Pleasure. and uh, welcome. So uh, you're going to put five things from your life yeah. into a time capsule, mm. uh, four that you treasure and one that you'd like to bury and get rid of. Yes. Happy? Very, very happy. Uh, very tough as well. I mean, quite quite hard to choose this, Mike. And um, I mean, if there were five things, I mean, five, I could put, you know, my wife and four children in, but um, mm. 
And on a bad day, uh, that's exactly what I want to do. Because <laughs> it can be a tough room, my kitchen, for me. I've got three sons, 21, 19, and 16. And I have a daughter who's in Miami. And because she's 4,000 miles ago, I get lots of texts telling me how much she loves me. Yeah. But then when she comes back for Christmas, within 20 minutes, she's telling me what a drag I am. So I think <laughs> the, the distance and the absence does make the heart grow a lot fonder. But um, no, it did. Yeah. It made me think, uh, actually. And um, yeah, the first thing I was thinking about was that when I look back on, you know, my family's the most important aspect of my life. And, I, and obviously, you know, like, like you, you go on holidays with your family. And mm. we come from a generation where we like to take photographs, right? So we want to kind of yeah. capture the moment, the Kodak moment. <laughs> and um, when I look back on the photographs, now you look them, on, look them on your phone now, but we used to have albums. And I was flicking through one, and I said to my wife, every group photo we have, and of course, as the years have gone by, the groups got bigger. So it was, it was Karen and myself and Paige. Paige is my stepdaughter. I, I gained possession of Paige when she was three. Mm. And her father had said that he, he died when she was about 18 months old. And Paige, so there's, originally there was you know family holidays with the three of us. And then Joe arrived in 1998. Then George arrived in the year 2000. And then Jack was a, a late addition in 2004. So now there are, there are six of us on holiday. Mm. And we normally get some friendly passerby to take a group photo of us. And I was looking at these photos. I said, you know what? In every single bloody photograph, I'm the only one smiling. <laughs> I said, well, why don't you smile, Carrie? So I, I, don't, I don't like my smile. I, I, I'd, I'd rather not. You know, I'd rather she's got that, you know, that I, I, I think I'd look like a bit of an idiot. I said, well, clearly I look like an idiot because I'm the only one. Yeah. I look like you've just come to some secure home in the country and you've taken the mad uncle out for a walk and you're taking a picture of him because I'm grinning like a complete idiot and with my children yeah. all staring into the camera like Abercrombie and Fitchmore. <laughs> all sucking their cheeks in. Yeah, and or, or looking slightly off camera in a kind of wistful mm. way, you know, a kind of <laughs> thinking deep thoughts whilst Muggins here is staring right down the bottle with a big, cheesy, love-me-or-I'll-kill-myself grin on. Yeah. <laughs> Robbing me of any any notion that I might have a brain. Or, or Honestly, it, I stick out like a sore thumb. I do look like some idiot they just pulled out from somewhere and said, this poor soul, let's take a picture with him. Or it looks like you've gone on holiday with your family to a place that you chose and you're having a whale of a time and they're hating every moment of it. And that is the other thing. I said, you all look so ungrateful. <laughs> and Joe says, well, why would we want to look like, you know, you look so uncool and you're really kind of stupid. And I said, but if you were all smiling, you would notice me, you know, we'd all be smiling. And then we get into a big debate about why do we need to smile on photographs? You know, yeah. all the best photographs are people who, who are, you know, I'm not smiling. And of course, the, it opened up this whole conversation about the best photographs, which of course they're right, are photographs taken of people when they're not aware of it. Yeah. You see, I, I guess it's my generation is we come from that generation where we stand in a row in front of a camera. <laughs> yeah. And we just grin like we have no brains. <laughs> and that was a sign that we're having a good time on holiday. And also, it's, it's an unusual event for people of our generation, the idea of taking a photograph. It's not anymore, but we still no. react to it as if it is. We still stand there and go, come on, we're going to take a photograph. And yes. the kids are going, we do it all the time. What are you talking about? But now, and, and now, of course, with the selfie, is, if you think about it, that's a phenomenon because 
I mean, I'm very grateful that people do carry selfie sticks because I like people to self-identify as morons. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm really happy when I see someone with a selfie stick and I'm going to avoid you. Um, yeah. But the idea of taking selfies now where, you know, you, you have this, I remember seeing actually it was quite a sad thing. I was in America with, with my wife and it was a work trip and she came out for a few days and we were in a restaurant. It was a nice sunny day. And there was a lady in the corner, and she's a very attractive woman. It must have been in her, you know, fifties, beautifully dressed, and uh, very well kind of coiffured. And uh, she had a plate of food in front of her and a glass of champagne. Mm. And um, she was holding her left hand out with her phone pointing at her, but she wasn't taking a selfie. She was making a little film, obviously for her Instagram, and she was talking to somebody off camera but there was nobody there uh, so she was talking to as if she was with somebody having lunch but she wasn't having lunch she was actually on her own oh no her imaginary date that's probably one of the saddest scenes i've seen that is yeah i felt like walking over to her saying listen you and i have a picture together by the way i'll be the one who's smiling uh you, yeah. you, you, <laughs> you don't have to smile <laughs> i could take care of the smiling bit <laughs> Or, or shall I have lunch with you? Yes. Yeah, I did. I felt like marrying her. <laughs> and that's the story of your life. Yes, well, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> <laughs> so have you got any photographs where everybody's smiling? Are, are they all those ones that are inadvertent? Well, he, here's the thing as well, is that I looked at my old, my old photographs when I was a kid. And um, we used to go to the Isle of Man when I was a kid because uh, we're, we're, we're a Liverpool family. And my mum uh, and dad you know, were hardworking people. Um, their mum and dad, uh, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, he's dead now. And I, we never really got on. He was a Liverpool fan and I was an Everton fan. I, my dad and I were both Everton fans. But he came to live with us because my grandmother was killed rather tragically in an accident, in a car accident, when she's only 49. So this man decides that he's going to dump himself on his daughter because he needs looking after. Mm. And it was one of those kind of really combustible kind of arrangements where you have this guy who, he worked on the docks, which meant in the 60s, he, didn't, he wasn't at work that often because the docks were so sewn up that you didn't have to go to... You didn't have to go to work if you didn't feel like it, but you still got paid. Yeah. There was an old joke going around Liverpool where um, it's the 60s and the trades unions were extraordinarily powerful. And some might say they lost the kind of sense of balance between liberal capitalism and, and just outright subversion. You know, they wanted to bring the system down a bit, mm. I think. You know, I think the unions are a fantastic thing, and I, I have an education because of them. There's no question about that. But... I think it's now, when you look back on the way the docks were run in the 60s, the management was very weak and and had been very grasping, and the men were trying to fight for their rights, but then became, there were a few individuals that kind of took that power and became kind of unbridled. So the joke is, yeah. shop steward comes out, he's a work convener, he's got his megaphone, he's got a microphone, he's told to 5,000 men on the Clarence dock, huge dock. He says to the men, men, we just come out for a 10-hour meeting with management, and... Uh, We've got a completely new deal. The deal is we get 10 weeks holiday a year, double the pay, and we only work on Wednesdays. <laughs> and a voice in the back said, what, every fucking Wednesday? <laughs> yeah. So that summed up my grandfather. That's what it was like. Yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. So he 
he wasn't a popular figure in the house with my father and I, but he used to go, he, religiously, the only place he'd go, apart from Liverpool, he didn't go down south, he went to the Isle of Man. And the Isle of Man was our mm. beach holiday. And um, we've got photographs of our holidays, Isle of Man. And again, I'm only four or five. But in these photographs, I'm the only one who's smiling. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Well, because they are all in a bad mood. I mean, yeah. the adults don't like each other. So there's a lot, a lot of tension in my family. And hungover, I should and imagine. massively hungover. <laughs> yeah. They're either hungover or they're desperate for a drink. So they're not about <laughs> to shoot the breeze with you in a friendly way, right? No. And then there's this little kid in front who's wreathed in big, hopeful smiles. <laughs> Again, looking like a bit of a tit. Before you do the four hours of sitting outside the pub with a packet of crisps uh, yeah. and a bottle of lemonade. God, I remember yeah. those days when... The, You'd be sitting outside the pub. I mean, literally nowadays, you know, you'd, you'd be scooped up by social services. But the, the door would open and this waft of cigarette smoke and stale booze would come out. And a big hairy fist with a bottle of pop and the crisps. And that was it. Yeah. And then the fist would go back yeah. in, the door would close, and that would be you for the next two hours. Yes. Um, a, a very common experience. Yeah. A very common experience. Yeah, for people of our age. Yeah, yeah. That's what we did. We were like tethered to the pub's door. Like a goat. <laughs> <laughs> I had uncles who worked in the docks in London. Yeah. And then, of course, in the 60s, they all took early retirement. Yeah. I mean, in their 40s, yeah, yeah. I think, and got enormous Huge. payoffs. Huge. My uncle bought a jewellery shop and put all the jewellery in it yeah. and became a very wealthy man selling jewellery oh, yeah, in yeah. southeast London. And, of course, they used to come back with um, lots of things from the ships, you know, which were, I suppose, they weren't, it wasn't entirely legal. And my grandfather joined the war. My mother, they, li they lived in Liverpool during the war. And uh, he, off a Chinese boat, he brought back a monkey uh, <laughs> and gave it to my mother. And my mother had this monkey um, for years. He said, and it grew and grew and grew. They used to keep it in a cupboard under the stairs. And it would go, it would go for anybody, very attached to my mother. It obviously thought that she was family, but would go for anybody who came near my mother. And, um, and in the end, at a family party, it, it broke out of the cupboard under the stairs and bit everybody. <laughs> and so they sold it to a circus. I mean, it was like an ape <laughs> in this two-bedroom house in Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, tiny places. Tiny, it was basically my mum, her brother, her mum and dad, and, and the ape. <laughs> uh, and my dad worked in, uh, in a power station on the Dock Road as well, and I mean, we could, we could never take any white goods back to the shops because they very rarely came from the shops. Yeah. You know, they were, a lot of our furniture was delivered at 10.30 at night. <laughs> <laughs> I would wake up in the morning to a new three-piece suite. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. I've been there. When I, when I was a student, we had so little money that we burnt the furniture. Oh, that's very resourceful. Yeah, through the winter, we ended up just sitting on cushions on the floor. We just slowly burnt through all the furniture yeah. and then one day we had we had a, a pound left and i was told to go to the bookies and put it on a horse to win in the hope that we would be able to buy fish and chips which i did and when i came back there was a three-piece suite and i said wow. where did this come from they said a, a fella knocked on the door and said do you want a three-piece suite and we said how much is it he said how much you got we there said, you go well if we win we'll probably have a fiver yeah. and he said well okay uh, they said to me, did you win? And I said, I did. They said, how much you got? I had 15 quid. So we got three-piece suite and fish and chips. 15 quid. 15 quid, yeah. yeah no, there was a lot of that going on in that kind of neighbourhood. And, and um, I remember there was, a, there was a story, I don't know how true it was, of a guy. The police began to tighten up a lot 
you know, because there was so much stealing off the docks in the end that, you know, the containers were like half full by the time they were, they were taken off, especially when drink was involved. You know, whiskey, well, a big consignment of whiskey, that, but, you know, the house would be full of it. And um, <laughs> not for long, by the way. But um, there was a story that the police tightened up and they would search everybody, which the men were completely affronted by, like, you know, the kind of sensitivity of opera singers. Yeah. They felt they were being, their feelings were hurt. And um, <laughs> so this guy, one night, he's going through the gates and he's got this wheelbarrow with tarpaulin suspiciously put over the wheelbarrow. Mm. And the policeman says, what, what's in the wheelbarrow? He said, nothing. He said, all right, take the tarpaulin. What's in the bloody wheelbarrow? Take the tarpaulin off. Nothing's in the wheelbarrow. Okay, all right, carry on. Night after night, he comes in at the end of the working day with the wheelbarrow tarpaulin. The same thing every single night until three weeks later, they found out he was stealing wheelbarrows. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. That, there's a resourceful man. <laughs> yeah. If God gives you lemons, make lemonade. Yeah. It reminds me of that, uh, that's that Dave Allen joke where he said, uh, the priest gets a phone call and they say, Father, your, um, your books have arrived. And he said, all right. He said, unfortunately, we dropped one of the parcels and uh, one of the books is leaking. <laughs> Yep, that was that world. It was. Jim, I'm going to take, well, I'm going to get one photograph of all of you. Yes. I'll put you in front of the Taj Mahal. We have one in front of the Taj Mahal. We have one. No smiling? No smiling. Jack was about eight years of age with a massive blonde hair. And we thought we'd lost him at one point. And it's quite a frightening moment where there's like 10,000 people and you can't find your eight-year-old, you know? Yeah. And then Joe, Joe, my eldest, said, there he is. This huge Indian family. All smiling, by the way, <laughs> with Jack in the front as the honoured guest of the family, having his photograph taken. And our guide said, the family have probably saved up all year to come to the Taj Mahal. They probably live, you know, hundreds of miles away. And when they go back to their village, they'll put that photograph up of the little blonde boy. Because <laughs> Jack, people would come and stroke his hair and touch his hair yeah. because... You know, if you lived in rural India, you don't normally see kind of, you know, Nordic looking children. And uh, no. so he was a kind of, he became like a talisman. I felt like actually I could, I could rent him out to Indian families. He <laughs> could have paid for the holiday. Yeah. <laughs> I went to the Greek island when I was a, a teenager and we met a man who claimed to be the island stud. And we, we said, that can't be possible. But actually... He was able to show us around the island and show us lots of Greek families with little blonde boys. It's nice work if you can get it. Yes. Well, I'd, maybe I should put up a picture in there, Jim, with just you yeah. looking sullen yes. and all them grinning like loons. That would be some kind of cosmic justice for the future to yeah. say, look at these people and this, what's this man? This, They're just so uncool. This, this, yeah, this man's looking so great. He's not smiling. Maybe, <laughs> maybe in 100 years' time, it will be fashionable not to smile. <laughs> You'll be the enigmatic one. Yeah. All right, that's going into the time capsule. So that's your first item. Yes. What's the second item? Well, the second item is slightly less frivolous in many ways. It's a medal, and it's the, a military medal. And it was um, awarded to my grandfather, who was called James Mulville. My father, his second eldest son, was called James Mulville. And you may have spotted, I am also called James Mulville. So yeah. there's no imagination in my family. Everyone's called James. <laughs> but that's not entirely true because um, my grandfather's second eldest son was called James, which indicates there was an older son called Martin. And the reason why he was called Martin was he was named after my grandfather's younger brother. 
And my grandfather joined the King's Regiment uh, at the beginning of the First World War and was sent immediately to the front. And his brother, Martin, joined him soon afterwards. And I have a letter. Actually, if I may, I'd like to put a little bundle of the medal in a, um, a glass frame with this letter. It's a handwritten letter in pencil. And I have it. Uh, it was given to me by my, um, my uncle, my, my dad's younger brother. Mm. He's the only now living member of that generation. There were, my father was one of nine, and they're all dead apart mm. from my uncle Jared, who's now 83. So um, he goes to the front. Martin goes to the front after him and is very young. He's 17. And my, I think my grandfather was 20. And excitedly, he writes about, you know, I'm going to meet Jimmy soon, his brother. Mm. It was Christmas Day. He said, it's very cold here. We just had some Christmas pudding. And I'd like to say uh, it's been a very Merry Christmas, but it hasn't really. I miss you all. He was writing to his older sister, Meg. And he said, I can't wait to meet Jimmy, and I'm, I'm hoping we'll all be reunited soon. So that spring, uh, he does go to the front, and he's, he's with his older brother, my grandfather. And uh, on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, uh, he's shot and killed. Mm. And my grandfather uh, runs into no man's land and grabs what he thought was the wounded uh, body of his younger brother, under enemy fire and pulls him back into the trench. And for that act of outstanding bravery, he's awarded the military medal. Mm -hmm. So it was a prized possession in my family, and it was given to me when I was about 21. Now, Mike, you knew me when I was uh, a younger man. Yeah. And, you know, I wasn't averse to um, the odd party <laughs> and uh, staying up late at night and doing all those things that, you know, um, people warn you about. And I lived in a flat on the Camden Road, which was so awful. Uh, it had no door on the toilet. I shared it with a friend of mine from Liverpool, David, David Hughes. And David and I shared the flat and uh, had no wardrobes. So he had two piles of clothes, one dirty, one clean. And in the morning with a massive hangover, he had to sniff an item of clothing to detect which was the <laughs> clean pile and the dirty pile. It wasn't a great kind of place to bring anyone back to, you know? No. Except what I would say, it had a fantastic carpet in it because um, – Remember, we used to do the Edinburgh Festival back in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm. And uh, we were paid cash. And I'd never had that much cash before. But the three-week run, we had Griff Reese jones in the show. who was just doing Not the 9 o'clock news at the time. There was a sellout at the assembly rooms. Wow. And we got paid, for the three weeks, we got paid £2,000 in cash. Brilliant. Anyway, I'm in liberties. Yeah. I've had a few drinks. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've had a few drinks. And it's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And don't forget, so I'm now... A drunk, recovering scouser. <laughs> I'm very well balanced. I've got a chip on either shoulder. And I'm, I'm in the poshest shop in London. Yeah. And for some reason, I'm walking around the carpet department. God knows why. But it's such a nice shop to walk around Liberties. And I'm half pissed. And this shop assistant comes up. You know when they come up to you and they like they just suddenly they're there. And they make you jump a bit. Yeah. It's like they've arrived on casters. And the way he said this to me just got my goat. He said, can I help you, sir? Now, I interpreted that as saying, what the fuck are you doing here, you piece of scouse? <laughs> That's what I heard, right? Um, <laughs> and I said, I'm thinking of buying a carpet. <laughs> and he said, well, um, these are very expensive carpets, sir. Now, I had a 1,000 quid in my pocket. And I said, how much is that one? It was a big Indian carpet. So that's a beautiful. That's hand woven. So that's, uh, well, he said, he said that. So that's, uh, and he's shaking his head as well at the time. Yeah. So he's shaking his head. 
And I say, you know something, that's, that's, that's 965 pounds, sir. I said, do you do deliveries? <laughs> I got the thousand quid out and I peeled off the notes and gave it to him. Which you think, how insane is that? That was, that's the notion that in that moment, I had to win that conversation. Otherwise, mm. life wasn't worth living. Yeah. It's not entirely sane thinking, Mike. I'll admit that, right? But it felt, it felt good at the time. Anyway, yeah, I'm sure. he takes my details down. About three months later, I get a phone call from David Hughes I shared the flat with. I'm at the, working at the BBC as a radio producer. And he's, he, he's at home. He's in between jobs. He said, did you buy a fucking big Indian carpet? <laughs> I went, no. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> I said, what's it like? He said, it's big. So I got home that night. It was so big that it not only it covered the floor, it went halfway up the wall. <laughs> it was like it was part wall covering and part floor covering. Snug then. So I had nestled this um, military medal in a drawer because my uncle Jerry gave it to me and he said, you're his namesake. You should have it. Mm. I said, I'm, thank you so much. You know, and my father had died by then. My father died, as you know, when I was 23 years of age. So I guess my father would have had it, but my uncle Jared gave it to me because my father was no longer around. And um, I was in that flat for a while and I moved flat. I, I met somebody and I moved in with that. And about a month later, it dawned on me, shit, where's the medal? And I went back to the flat. And the lady who was the landlady was, I, I don't know whether she hadn't got any medication right that day, but she was a strange woman. And I said to her about the military medal, and she, I don't know whether she was, oh, she was lying to me. Anyway, she, she wouldn't let me go and have a look in the flat, and she said it wasn't there. She'd made sure that it wasn't there, and none of my belongings were there. And, and so I, I'd lost the military medal. Oh, no. So there I was, aged, I suppose, by then about 27. And I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't tell a soul. And um, in my 30s, I uh, calmed down a bit, stopped drinking, got, got back on track a bit. And um, I decided to come clean to my uncle. And I told him, I said, I've lost your father's military medal. And he's such a decent man. But you could see he was so wounded. Mm. Um, anyway, a little while later, he had problems with his health, and and, um, and I helped him out a bit with that, uh, you know, just in, just in terms of getting appointments and things. And and he recovered, and we became very close. In fact, we go to the football. We we're both Evertonians, and we we both have season tickets, and we we go to the game together. I, I used to go with my father. I now go with my uncle, who is very similar to my dad. He's very mm. looks the same and very dry wit, very funny guy, and and uh, and I love him a lot, you know. And anyway, when his brother died michael and he was the only one left at the funeral my uncle jared said and this is going back about 12 years now he said jimmy let's have a family mulville family reunion before we're all bloody dead hmm. so we organized a big party at everton's football ground and he said to me why don't you come a bit earlier i want to talk to you about something so i said fine so i was driving up to um liverpool you know i'd lost touch with you know i'd moved to london when i was nine i'd moved to university when I was 19 and down to London and I hadn't kept in touch with my family that much except Uncle Jared and that night I was going to meet the rest of my family um, and I was kind of nervous about that anyway I arrive early and my Uncle Jared hands me a parcel and um, he said this is um, to say thank you for helping me out a few years ago and I opened it 
and he had contacted the Ministry of Defence, and he'd had the medal restruck. Oh. So there was my grandfather's, albeit newly minted, but there it was, and with the other service medals that he's actually got. It's up on my wall now. He's got five service medals, first of all, and the one in the middle is the military medal, which is for outstanding bravery. And had he been an officer, he would have got the military cross and bar. Had he been killed, mm. he would have got the Victoria Cross. It's one down from, from the Victoria Cross. So it was really important to me. And, and I just thought it was an enormous act of kindness on behalf of my uncle mm. just to set me free from the guilt, you yeah. know, just to say it's all right, you know, here it is. And, um, and that year, of course, my, Joe was only little. He was only about 10, and they were doing the First World War. And he took the medals in, and he told them the story about his grandfather um, so in many ways, this this should be in, in a time capsule because such a long story hangs off it, going back to 1916. Mm. Uh, it's it's over a hundred years long this story, and it has a happy ending. And it's it's a beautiful symbol of the fact that it's important to remember that sort of uh, oh, yeah. well madness, but at the same time extraordinary yeah. bravery. And a devotion to each other. The fact that, that this is his younger brother yeah. he's, he's running out to yeah. save, hoping to save yeah. his life. And that's, that's yeah. a, uh, it, it, you bring me to tears, Jim. And that's why he called his oldest son Martin. Uh, and, of course, he, about a week after his brother was killed, his mother got a bill from the um, war office for a shilling for the blanket that he was buried in. Uh, so my grandfather was... <laughs> when they came round on Poppy Day, he used to chase him down the road with his stick because he had no time for them. <laughs> and it, and that generation, I mean, now we, you know, we go straight into therapy and we have Reiki and massage. Yeah. And we tell everyone. And we tell everybody. On Twitter. Everything, yes. you know. Um, yeah. But in those days, those guys didn't. No. They, I mean, I'm not saying that's a good thing, by the way, but there was a no. kind of um, a nobility in, in the way they sort of just uh, suffered. I remember that my father's generation and my father would only ever talk about the war as funny anecdotes. Yes. My father was involved with a car. My father bought a carpet. He went. He was in Cairo uh, after the war had ended. Right. And he, he bought a carpet in a market there and had it shipped back to his mother. And the military lorry arrived and the bloke said, Mrs. Stevens? And she said, yeah. He said, uh, you've got something on the lorry for you. And it was a six-foot box with my dad's name and number printed on the side of it. And she collapsed to the floor, screaming in terror. Oh, going, my God. Oh, my baby, my boy, <laughs> my boy. And he said, that's all right, love, it's a carpet. <laughs> it's a dead carpet. It's a carpet. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I remember you, Jimmy, at that time, obviously, as you're doing. I remember you doing that thing with the carpet yeah. uh, on a number of occasions. Yes. I remember sitting in... Uh, <laughs> Chez Gerard's and uh, the waiter came over. And again, it was that sort of working class, enormous chip that does it, isn't it? Yeah. He said, Jim, how much, are the, um, how much is the green lobster? And he, he said, that's very expensive, sir. And you said, good, I'll have two. Oh, God. And I was earning like nothing. Nothing. You know, so I'd be always on the verge of bankruptcy. Remember once nearly causing an international incident, uh, Peter Bennett Jones's, a mutual friend of ours who... It was his 30th birthday and we were in France and I started ordering Armagnac. Armagnac was my, you know, this thing. It was so posh, <laughs> Armagnac. I, could, I had no idea what it was. I just like saying it. <laughs> Armagnac. And uh, I, asked, I think time for Armagnac? Yes, let's have some Armagnac. And uh, so 
I insisted on getting a bottle that was in the year of Peter's birth, which is 1955, right? So we went through that, and I said, can I have another bottle of that? And the waiter, I think by now, wanted us yeah. to go, you know, quite rightly. But anyway, uh, we were 30 years of age and thought we were golden. And uh, I said, well, he said, we've run out of the 55. I said, well, what else have you got? What else was good? Ah, oh, but I have another bottle. What, 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 what year was good then? <laughs> He said, well, 1939 was a very good year. I said, not for you lot around here, it wasn't. <laughs> and we were soon asked to leave yeah. that restaurant. And probably a good thing you didn't buy the 1939. You'd still be paying for it. I thought that the 55 was 2 francs 50 a glass, and it was 25 francs a glass. Oh. And in the end, I had to borrow the money off people the following day to pay the bill. Yeah, I bet. But I, I, used to, I used to live my life going from embarrassing situation to embarrassing <laughs> situation. <laughs> Yes, I'll remind you, you've almost certainly forgotten, because you probably asked everybody at the time, but I do remember going in your very smart, brand new Golf GTI from a recording oh, of yeah. Who Dares Wins, and we used to dash out to the pub at lunchtime. And then on the way, you saying to me, yeah, we're thinking of doing this as, uh, as an independent production company next year, actually. Uh, do you want to put some money in it? And I said, <laughs> how much? And you went, I said, 10 grand? And I went, no, I'm all right, Jim, thanks. The idea of giving you 10 grand. I don't think it would have been one of your wisest moves. Well, I don't know. How much is that company worth now? Yeah, no, actually. Possibly. Uh, it might never have made it into the investment package. <laughs> it might have gone down my throat or up my nose. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, Jimmy, that is the most lovely thing to put in there. And I think it's going to go in a special place. So it's prominent, that lovely collection of medals. Right. Thank you. Have you still got the letter? Yes, oh, I've got the wow. letter. I, I, I was going to put the letter in the back of the thing, Yeah, at the back of the medals. So if anyone found it, they could read this, such a touching letter from this young man who was about to, you know, his life is about to come to a very premature end. Mm. Um, and we know where he's buried. And uh, I keep saying to my uncle, I'm going to take you there. And I should get a move on, actually. Yeah. You reminded me. Okay, that's fantastic. So, um, So what's your third item? Okay, we're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back with Jimmy very soon. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, welcome back. So let's find out what else Jimmy Mulville would like to put into his time capsule. How big do the items have to? I mean, can they be any size? Any size. Okay, well, I, I'm going to put Goodison Park in the, ah. the the place where my team play, and it's not just that I'm a football fan, but I am such a fan of this particular piece of real estate because it is built right in the middle of where people live, mm. and there are so few football stadiums now which um, tell a story like that. Yeah. I mean, that's the story of a very old club. It used to be called St. Domingo's, which was an old Catholic church team. Um, and of course, Liverpool. Um, so you had these two teams and they're separated by Stanley Park. And they are both clubs that are at the heart of what was, and I hope still is, the kind of working class neighborhoods of Liverpool. And an aerial photograph is just this patch of verdant, beautiful lawn mm. surrounded by thousands of coronation streets thousands and thousands of terraced houses yeah and a school and the school was called gladys street and it's a primary school and that's where i went uh. so i would spend my life staring at goodison park mm. and the team in those days they'd leave the ground every day to go training so i would see a coach filled with my heroes go past the school playground every day the alex young and roy vernon gordon west all these great everton players and in those days in the 60s uh, everton you know were they won the league they won the cup and and uh, my father and i would go regularly uh, he was an evertonian and we go to the reserve games as well in fact we um i remember once i was coming back from a, a reserve game i was talking to my dad gabbling away as i do and i clearly had started walking off the pavement in the gutter and my dad was you know he was smoking a cigarette and he was miles away and I, he's listening to this you know eight-year-old kid burbling on obviously not keeping an eye on him next thing is I'm knocked down by a cyclist. <laughs> my dad panics. We go into a scout hut. A woman takes us into a scout hut for some reason. All I've got is memory is being given a junior aspirin <laughs> and a glass of water. I got this terrible bump on my head. And my dad, as we're walking down, I, I, I began to understand male-female relationships. I was there about nine at the time. When he said, you all right then, son? I said, yeah. He said, listen, um, it's probably not a great idea if you tell your mother about this. <laughs> Yeah, I said that's all right, Dad. And of course, that was great because then my dad and I had a bond. Yeah, we were like we were guys. Yeah, you know? our secret. Exactly. So I've got many, many happy memories of. And I was, I was debating whether to put Goodison Park in or whether to put the theme tune that Everton come out to, which is a terrible song. It's Sweeney Todd. It was the theme tune to that old show Zed Cars. Zed Cars. Yeah. Da, 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 I don't know. We, I, 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 have we got copyright to sing this on this yeah, I show? I don't care. They can sue away. Sue away. We, we've got no money anyway. Well, you got the money. <laughs> well, not after COVID-19. I haven't. <laughs> That's true. So I was debating on whether, because that when I hear that, and I, as I say, I, 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 I go there now with my youngest son, Jack. He was an Evertonian. And um, and I kind of claim Jack's soul for Everton. I, I um, And then one year he was mascot, which kind of sealed the deal. Yeah. Because he had... He met the players. He held Phil Jagielka's hand, and and he's so he's an Evertonian. So he's the only Evertonian that goes to a London school because he's, <laughs> but actually quite likes it. It's quite cool, you know, because 
they're all Chelsea fans or Tottenham fans, Arsenal fans, and and then he's an Everton fan. So um, so anyway, the three of us, my uncle Jared and I and Jack, we go to the games whenever we can. Mm. And uh, a bit like baseball in America, I think it, it is a intergener. And it's not just fathers and sons now; it's fathers and daughters and mothers and sons and families going now, which is great. But for me, it was a connection with my dad and my wider family who were all Evertonians. Mm. It was another way of having community. You know, it was a, it, you felt like you were part of something bigger than yourself, which is always a nice feeling. Yeah. And my son and I, you know, we, we, we have that, you know, and I said to him, you, you'll always be an Everton fan. Now, even if you decide to support somebody else, you'll always be an Everton fan because this, this was something that was almost etched on your hard disk. You know, these are memories that literally when they, I hear that song, the hairs on my neck go up. And I know lots of football fans who uh, have a similar affiliation. But I go, um, I know Bill Kenwright, who's the, who's the chairman, is another kind of diehard blue. Mm. So it's a, it's a part of my life which is very different to the other parts of my life, but it's very precious. It's kind of, um, it reminds me uh, where I'm from. Yeah. And I love the game. I'm not sure I like footballers that much. No. And when I heard that Kyle Walker... <laughs> <laughs> had been done for having a party in his house with a couple of sex workers. Oh, Lord. I thought it was fantastic because if he'd done it in the park, it would have counted as exercise. <laughs> <laughs> so Goodison Park, I think, is, is, is the thing that's close to my heart and it's, a, it's an unusual thing to put in a, in a time cash, but I'd like that to go in. You can certainly have it. And in fact, I, I owe it to you, Jim. I owe you Goodison okay, Park. I, because, well, I owe it to you and Bill Kenwright because Bill Kenwright was the man who got me my equity card, gave me my first job. That really? Got me, yeah. And you were the first person to give me an actual job, you know, as an actor. There you go. There you are. So Goodison Park is definitely going in there. All right, mate. Lovely. So we've done three. Yeah, okay. We're cracking on. Okay, number four. So this is a really uh, odd one. It's it's my father's wink. Uh, like I say, he's a working man and uh, very intelligent, but less school when he was 14, one of nine, and um, he got a scholarship to St. Edward's College, and his dad said, you're not going there, you're going to work. So my father also grew up with the kind of rage that a man who knows that there was a life there for him, he didn't live. Mm. So I think his unlived life weighed heavily upon him. But he was brilliant company. He could tell a story. And I used to get him on his own at night. My mum would, would go to bed and he'd stay up and I'd stay up with him after the party had ended. A lot of parties in my house, especially at weekends. Someone said the only time a member of my family refused to drink was when they misunderstood the question <laughs> so we had a lot of parties some of them were great fun and often heightened when the police arrived it was all it was fantastic I'd, I'd sit like two in the morning there were no boundaries in my house i'd be about 11 two in the morning and I'd, he'd sit there with his in his chair with his legs akimbo and i'd sit in between his knees facing outwards and he's facing outwards and he'd have a fag in one hand and his beer in the other and he'd tell me these incredible stories um, but that was the only time I really got him on his own because my father was a man who flourished most in company. He wanted company. He liked having company. Mm. And so he had a party. I, was, I remember saying to this guy once, you know, my dad is, I really wanted the movie and what I got was the trailer. Uh, you know? Yeah. I wanted more. But he was a working man. He worked shift work. So he worked from 6 till 2 one week, then from 2 till 10 p.m. one week, then nights the next week. So, you know, he was kind of a, um, a blurry figure in many ways, but he was 
inspirational to me because he, he he was the one who 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 said to me, look, there are two ways out of Liverpool: football, sport, or education. I've seen you play football. Get yourself an education. <laughs> and he was banging on about education long before Tony Blair was. Yeah. You know, he's and he was the one who encouraged me and said, you know, you're a bright lad. Work hard at school. Go and see the world. And so he um and he did actually he 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 he, he helped me through all those kind of years and but i always remember the reason why i said my father's wink was we'd be at a party and i'd be sitting down just as a young boy 11 12 with the other kids who were there and my father would be with his group of friends across the room and he'd be telling a story and then there'd be a moment where he obviously tell the punchline heads would would go back people would be laughing some people would be spitting into their beer and my dad would be laughing. And then he'd just see me across the room and he'd give me a wink. Uh, and the wink, it kind of, it was a secret code between yeah. me and my dad. Yeah. And it made me feel incredibly special, you know. And, and I remember saying this once, when I, in, in my 30s, when I, um, when I stopped drinking, uh, uh, that's when I went really mad. And I went to see a therapist. And we talked about my childhood and all this stuff. And, uh, and I said about this story about, about my dad, about, you know, the, the wink. He said, what was it like? I said, it was thrilling. Mm. It was a thrill. He said, mm, interesting word, thrill. And he got a dictionary down and he said, thrill is, um, oh yeah, well, obviously it means to you know, excite and to enthrall and to secondary meaning, a fencing term, to pierce. And, I, and I, it was the feeling of, it was that feeling of, it was exciting and it was it made me feel special, but it also made me understand what I didn't get as well, which I didn't get enough time with my father. Mm. You know, now my kids growing up, I've hung out with them a lot, probably too much. They probably sick of the bloody sight <laughs> no. of me. That thing of a wink, though, what's brilliant about it is, is the fact that while the whole room has been entertained by his story, as far as he's concerned, they're the audience, but he's happy to share the performer thing with you. He's happy to go, you get it, son. You see what I've done there? Yeah, it was a conspiratorial wink. Yeah. And there's something about a wink, isn't there, which is very, I mean, winking can be friendly, it can be sexy. Mm-hmm. It can be threatening. It's a fantastic tool, the wink. I don't think I ever use it. Ah, maybe you should start practicing the wink. Mind you, you might get arrested on public transport, but... <laughs> yeah, that's true. Thinking about it, I do have one grandson who winks. My, my grandson, Freddie. Wink my, back! My, yeah, wink I know. Back. I'm going to, definitely. Granddad's wink. He sort of learnt it as a, as a, you know, that thing, exactly what you're saying, that conspiratorial thing. And he will yeah. tell you something and then just give you a quick wink as most say hey you didn't know that did you yeah and also the wink can say i didn't mean what i just said there exactly all right so i'm going to put that in there jim your father's wink he's going to sit in the corner you know just when you're least expecting it he'll give you a little wink yeah okay so so what's the thing you'd like to bury in the time capsule uh joggers <laughs> um, well particularly at the moment well at the moment it's it's brought it home to me that i take my dog for a walk around hyde park and, um, you know, we're told to keep the two meters distance. Now, I, as mm. you know, I've had the virus. So apparently I'm afforded some immunity. I don't know for how long or what that means. So I'm not living in fear of catching the disease. I've had it once and, and, and it, was, it was grim, but I didn't have to go to hospital, thank God. And I'm very lucky. But I'm walking the dog and suddenly someone just brushes past you and they're panting and they're wheezing all over you. And I'm thinking, you know, I know you're out for a run. But at the moment, you're out for a run and you have the potential to be a serial killer, you idiot. 
right? <laughs> yeah. um, and studies have been done in it. When overweight middle-aged men, and let's face it, some of them have just had the idea of getting fit during lockdown, right? Because we've got a lot of people dragging a lot of arse around Hyde Park, panting and wheezing. <laughs> They've never run that far or that fast before. And as they approach me, it's like, you know, the soundtrack is like Jaws. As they're approaching me, I'm thinking, come on, <laughs> you're obese. You're 55. You're obviously a smoker. Where's the heart attack now I need it? <laughs> and they're puffing like an old steam train. And they just don't seem to get it. Because what happens is when they get the Lycra on, they're in a world of their own. Yeah. So they literally do not see anybody else. I have to say, I have done this myself. Um, I'm very aware of distance. I spend the whole time, if I run or do any exercise, crossing the road all the time to avoid people. But I've gone past other people and I don't wear earphones. So I'm very aware of how much noise I'm making. Yes. It's an unbelievable amount of wheezing and puffing. The thing is that you definitely see with your ears. The spatial awareness is partly from what you're hearing. And I think they're just not aware. So so if you're hearing Coldplay, you're in big trouble. Yeah, I, I, I do think, you know, I'm so judgmental. But when I see them coming out, I'm thinking, you're definitely listening to Shawaddy Waddy or something. <laughs> it's definitely not something that is on my iPhone. But God bless them. I mean, uh, I've seen them carrying these huge carcasses around. Not that I've got anything against fat people as such. But I just wish they didn't have anything against me. Yes, quite. You know, so I, I, I'd let's say inconsiderate joggers are people that I would like to bury for good. Um, and cyclists, let's, let's put them in together. Okay. It's basically fat middle-aged men in Lycra that I've got to think about. <laughs> Just occasionally they are entertaining, though. I was actually walking, uh, you know, walking for exercise, good exercise and catching up to a jogger the other day. He had the earphones in, and he went, everybody was. <laughs> and it was one of the great. most entertaining things I'd heard for years. That is great. Oh, God. So, yeah, I'm oh. going to put him and all his compatriots into the time capsule. Thank you very much. We'll withdraw the air very slowly so they'll just expire. Okay, we've got one item to go. Okay, and again, I thought, I thought long and hard. I thought what's important to me, and what are the things that people should know about in the future is, I think human beings, and like I said, you know, we've, I've known you for 40 years. Yeah, it's true. More, actually. And, you know, we will have stories that we can tell which witness a time of our lives, which mm. we know happened. And in the end, I think they're the glue that stick us together, that, that hold us together. Nations have stories. They're often not entirely accurate, but they're stories they tell about who they are as a people. And I think individuals have stories which tell the narrative of their lives. And I think that I grew up with, my dad was a great storyteller, for example. And um, I had an auntie who was a professional storyteller in Lincolnshire where she told Irish stories oh. to school children. And, you know, pre-literate societies, poems and other mm. stories were oral. Mm. It's an oral tradition. So, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey came from an oral tradition where you would have a party and you'd book a poet. And you'd say, all right, do the bit where um, <laughs> Hector gets it in the neck. Do that bit. So they'd have their kind of, you know, rosy-fingered dawn, a rose uh, entered Apollo's chariot, whatever it was. You know, and then he'd get into his story. And then someone wrote that down, and it became the Iliad and the Odyssey. But the verbal anecdote, I think, is such a great mm. thing. And, you know, in our business, I think, especially in our business, you know, when I was an actor in the 80s, you did a job with people. And you go on to the next job 
remember, you know, working with Timothy West at the old Vic and his stories. I just loved his stories because they weren't just funny stories. Mm. They were history lessons in the, the history of the British theatre. He tells stories about working with Olivier and Peter O'Toole, crazy, crazy stories um, and funny and often against himself, yeah. which I think they're the best kind of stories where you put yourself in the position of not being the hero, but being the fool. And, you know, I've got lots of different stories that I tell, but I think some of the stories that we have as a family as well, they glue the family together. So I want to put anecdotes into the box. And just to give you an example of the kind of anecdotes I mean is we, we took the kids to South Africa to go to a little game park and it was a tiny game park for young kids. And they had, they had a pride of lions but we were told very early on that the lioness had just had some cubs and the cubs uh, would be sequestered somewhere safe and the lion would be guarding them. And we probably wouldn't see the pride of lions that week, which is a big downer. Mm. I'm thinking no lions. Oh, come on. Anyway, we're trying to say, look, it doesn't matter about the lions. Look, look at that. There's an <laughs> impala over there. And really secretly, I wanted something to, something to eat the impala. Yeah. That's what I wanted. I was fed up with seeing the friggin' impalas. I wanted to see an impala eviscerated hanging from a tree with a cheetah or a lion at the bottom of it with dripping gore from its lips. That's what I wanted. That's what Yeah. That's what I wanted my children to see. Real entertainment, right? Anyway, we're out on the dawn patrol. You know, as you know, I didn't realise this. You book a safari and you're getting up at five o'clock in the morning because oh that's when the animals come out you're tired. Jesus Christ. Anyway. One morning we're out. It's an open Jeep, by the way. So you mm. go around in an open Jeep. We turn a corner and there he is, the lion. There's Lenny. And he's right, he's staring at us. And we stop the Jeep. And Martin, the ranger, and then we have a spotter called Kenneth, who is he's a black South African being driven around by a white South African. And the black South African is sitting on a seat on a pole <laughs> above the Jeep in the most <laughs> vulnerable position. It did strike me that although... Mm. Apartheid was over, but there was cert- a certain inequality of safety positions yeah. that was being shared by the white South African and the black South African. Because if anyone's getting eaten first, it's not <laughs> Martin, the ranger, it's Kenneth, the spotter. It's like he's in the window. It's like he's in the <laughs> shop window. So we stop the car, we stop the engine. It goes very quiet. And the is looking at us. And the little boys, Joe and George, are now rigid with excitement and their father's rigid with fear. And Karen's saying to me, is this all right? Is this all right? Is, is this safe? I'm saying, Karen, I don't know. I don't know. So I said to Martin, oh, are we all right here? He said, oh, yeah, don't worry. He said, the lion will only attack us if he's frightened. <laughs> I said, does he look frightened? No. What's he got to be frightened of? I said, I don't know. Maybe he's a neurotic lion. I don't, I don't know. Maybe he's got free-floating anxiety. I've got a lot of it right now. As he read the email about he only attacks when he's frightened, and then he throws his head back, this lion. And he's, he's honestly, he's not like a lion you see in the zoo. This, this guy's ripped, right? He is fit. And he throws back his head and he roars. And again, it's not like the roar you see. The MGM lion, honestly, sounds like a pussycat compared to this guy. This guy is visceral. And it shudders through the whole structure of the Jeep. It's just, I mean, fuck. and I'm taking pictures. And I, I'm, I'm trying to calm Karen down and saying, Jimmy, listen, this is ridiculous. We're in an open Jeep. I said, look, it's fine, it's fine. And Martin's saying, just sees the Jeep as one entity. As long as no one moves around too dramatically, we'll be okay. So suddenly now, 
is a condition to our safety. Yeah. Right? It's not like we're completely safe. It's let's nobody move around. Now, you know, if you're slightly OCD like I am, <laughs> suddenly I want to move around a lot. I don't know why, but I've got this whole thing about it. Anyway, he roars again and he takes a step towards us and then looks at us, gets very uninterested, turns around and sashays up the road over oh. the horizon and away. Paige, by the way, my daughter, has slept through the whole thing at the back under a coat at the back. She was up too early, hated it. She's a teenager, <laughs> don't want to be here. She slept through the whole event. We go back to the lodge and Martin the ranger says to Joe, and Joe, like me, he, you know, he, he's, a, he's a bit of a talker and he likes to kind of you know, express himself. And he said, Joe, did you enjoy that? Oh, he said, I loved it. I loved it. And Daddy, it was fantastic. He's about seven at the time. He said, God, the lion's roar, Daddy. It was so loud. He said, I could feel it in my bones. It was shuddering in my bones. I thought my bones and my heart were going to shatter because it was so loud. And Martin said, it was loud. And he said to George, and George is a more taciturn character. He's a kind of quieter boy, a man of few words. And he said to George, George, where did you feel the lion's roar? And George looked for a while and said, in my testicles. <laughs> <laughs> I said, George, that's exactly where the lion wants you to feel it. Yeah. Right in your testicle. <laughs> it's a feeling that daddy has on a regular basis. <laughs> so it's stupid stories like that, that. I think they're the glue that keep us all together and make us think that our lives, you know, whilst on, on many levels, totally inconsequential, you know, have moments of just unadulterated joy in them like that. Yes. A conversation is a very different thing from an anecdote. There's a respect for an anecdote that you don't get in normal conversation. Yes. The moment somebody starts an anecdote, people ease off. Oh, yeah. And when someone tells it well, like Barry Cryer, yeah. you know. Yeah. Andy, Andy Hamill, I have to get Andy out of my office sometimes because he comes in to ask a question. Half an hour later, we're swapping so many anecdotes. The day's going, <laughs> the sun's setting, people are going home from work. Yeah. My children are growing up at home and Andy's <laughs> on his 15th anecdote. And, and me too, you know, we're both, we're both anecdotalists. Yeah. Um, I love a good anecdote. Oh, and when someone, I mean, remember Peter Ustinov, the way he could tell oh. a story and he made a living out of it. Yeah, Stephen yeah. Fry can tell a very good story. You know, it, it's the art of storytelling, mm. I think. And, and when someone doesn't have it and they embark on a story, it is kind of tragic. It's torturous as well. There was a, there was a moment when we were doing a film uh, down in Cornwall in the early 90s with the actor Richard Wilson, who could tell a very funny story. And Patricia Hayes was also in the cast. Brilliant comic actress, who then also in her later years became a brilliant dramatic actress and won a BAFTA for her portrayal of Edna the Inebriate Woman. Remember that mm -hmm. show where she played this homeless drunk on the street? Yeah. But she was now nearly 90 and she drifted in and out of lucidity. So sometimes she'd say something rather strange and then other times she was right on the ball. She was in the, in the show, in the film, playing the aged nanny of the young heroine, Emily Mortimer's, like Emily Mortimer's first job. And Prue Scales was in it. And we're all having dinner one night down in Devon. And the, the way the protocol went, as you know, Mike, you've been on these kind of jobs before where you all meet up afterwards. Mm. Uh, you've done your day's work. You had a, yeah, a couple of drinks in the bar. You sit down, you have a nice dinner. At the end of the dinner, Richard is the lead lead actor would call down the other end of the table where I was sitting to say, Jimmy, that was absolutely delicious, which meant I was paying, right? <laughs> um, which is fine. So um, then he'd say, you know, what was funny today was when we were on the beach filming, it reminded me very much of when I was doing a, oh, it was a cough and a spit in a film with uh, Peter Finch. And 
we'd go off and we'd tell a story and we'd be enthralled and it'd be a very funny story mm. and we'd all laugh and then Prue Scales would weigh in with a story and then it would work as well and I'd chip in. But there was a kind of hierarchy to the storytelling, yes. right? It was a respect. We had a young actor. He's a lovely guy. He came down for two days and I scooped him up and said, look, we're all going out for dinner. Come and say hello to everybody before we work tomorrow. Because the great thing about actors and being on a film set like that is, you know, people are generally very, very nice. Yes. There's a whole kind yeah. of thing that they project onto our business. Oh, it's very cutthroat. It really isn't that cutthroat. If you're part of it, you're part of it. That's yeah. it. So this, this young man comes and sits down at the table and you know, he's a very nice guy, but he hasn't, he hasn't had the memo about what happens after dinner, right? Yeah. And we finished dinner and Richard said, thank you, Jimmy. That was very nice. And then this young man says, oh my God, you know what happened to me today on the train coming down? It was hilarious. And he starts telling this story, Mike. Intuitively, I know in the first 10 seconds, this story has no shape, but most tragically, it has no end. Oh, no punchline. This is just something he thinks is hilarious to happen to him. Yeah. And Patricia Taze is staring at him throughout this anecdote, right? <laughs> and he gets to the end of it, and it's like, well, and then, and then what happened was he dropped, he dropped that, the, 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 the spoon, and it was just, it was really, oh, it was so funny, so funny. <laughs> and there was the longest of pauses. And Patricia Hayes stared at him and said, well, I hope you can act. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's so glorious. in the end, his non-anecdote became, a, became an anecdote. Yeah. Um, you're right. Anecdotes are, uh, they are the glue of society. They, when people run out of things to say to each other, they say, I heard a funny story the other day, and off they go. Yes. You, you fill the gap. And therein lies a clue sometimes. I mean, we, we, we watch great drama to be entertained, but also we subliminally, unconsciously, we're looking for clues of what does life mean? How do we live life? And I think in funny stories, sometimes it's a very serious lesson or yes. message, not that you'd, you'd want to preach that, but Carl Jung, the great 20th century psychologist that gave birth to the whole Jungian uh, school, he said that when he became a famous uh, psychologist, he had the great and the good coming to his house in Switzerland to try and have an audience with him, kings and queens and heads of state never had an interesting conversation with one of them. His most interesting conversations were with strangers on trains. Yeah. And that's the truth is if you open yourself up to listening to somebody on a journey, everybody has a story. Yes, absolutely. Everybody has a story. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'd be happy to come in there with you, actually, Jim. <laughs> we're going to go through all the anecdotes that we know. Yes. <laughs> and there are plenty. So uh, yeah, there certainly are. it's one yeah, of the pleasures yeah. of getting older, is that the number of anecdotes you've got grows. Yeah. And, and you know what? When you laugh at the end of it, you, you have the laughter of survivors. Yeah. You know, is that we went through that terrible whatever it was, and here we are. Yes. It doesn't matter. Yes. As you say, a lesson in life. Well, your time capsule is very interesting. Right at the beginning of this conversation, you said... The most important thing to me, obviously, are my wife and my children and my family. And everything you've chosen has been family orientated. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of your father's wink yeah. and your grandfather's brother's medal and Goodison Park, which is so precious to you because yeah. you went to school there and where your family went and going with your father. The whole thing. And then, of course, that wonderful Liverpool thing of being able to tell a good story. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Jim. It's been really lovely to hear. It's been a pleasure, Mike. A pleasure. It really is. Thank you very much for giving up the time. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. 
You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Jimmy Mulville. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you usually get your podcasts. And if you have the time, we'd be grateful if you would rate us and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at MyTCPod or at Fenton Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens, and the music is by Past the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. So, until next time, I'll just leave you with this thought. <laughs> yeah, that's one for all the mind readers out there. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.